We are continuing our series called I Believe in the Church, and we're looking at today Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 21. So if you turn there with me this morning, Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 21, as we continue this series, I Believe in the Church. And what we're going to begin to see here in Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 21 in particular, is Paul is describing what life looks like as a child of God. Now that you have been, all of the things that we have been looking at in uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and 4, this idea even last week uh, of this new life in Christ, he wants to get down on the ground and, and spell it out for us specifically. Uh, what it looks like to be a child of God, how the, what the change looks like, what the life looks like, and specifically what it looks like in the context of community for us as a church. So let's look at this together. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 21, hear the word of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And God, Lord, would you once again make us new by your word. And Lord, may Jesus preach by the power of your Spirit. And it's in his name I pray, amen. As a parent, you learn very quickly that kids love to imitate. Kids love to imitate at a very early age, whether it is my son sitting on, uh, sitting on the, um, the sink uh, counter next to me watching me shave, 
or my daughter running out and behind me and taking out the trash to the garbage, or my son wanting to dress like me, or my daughter's wanting to talk like me. Whatever it is from an early age, you realize kids, for better or for worse, love to imitate. And it should be no surprise when Paul says here, be imitators of God, the whole idea of imitation is not something that is strange for us, for human beings. After all, we have been created to imitate. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says what? Then God said, I think we have the verse for the screens here. One second, there we go. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says what? Then God said, this is our creation, let us make man in what? Our image. And after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing on the earth. So God did what? So God created man in his image, and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What that tells us in Genesis chapter 1, from the very beginning, God created us to be imitators. He created us to imitate God. He created us in the image of God, in his likeness, so that we would reflect God, so that we would be imitators of God. And so when Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, be imitators of God, that is not a strange thing. What is strange is that he would have to remind us of that, but we know the reason he has to remind us of that is because what happens in Genesis chapter 3, we fail to imitate God. We fail to live out what we've been created to do. And because of sin and because of the fall, what begins to happen? Instead of imitating God, we begin to imitate everything but God. And the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the gospel is Jesus as the hero of the story returning us back to what? What we've been created to do, to be imitators of God. And so what Paul was chiefly concerned with here in Ephesians chapter 5 is that the Ephesian Christians were living in a culture and a community that was tempted to imitate everything but God. They were confronted with every temptation. They were confronted with every vice. They were confronted with everything that the world and the culture has to offer. And Paul's biggest concern was, now that you've received this new life in Christ... My biggest concern for you, one of my biggest concerns for you is that you would fail to imitate the very God that has rescued you, the very God that has created you, the very God that has redeemed you, because the world will tempt you with every lie to imitate this or to imitate that. So it's not imitation that is unusual, but it's what does it look like to imitate God? And Paul's concern with who or what will you imitate? now that you are a child of God. And one of the keys here in verse one, it says, be imitators of God as what? As a beloved child. What does it mean to be beloved? It means to simply be dearly loved more than you could ever hope for or imagine. And so what Paul is trying to communicate is that if it is true that you are dearly loved, is if it is true that you are loved as a child of God more than you could ever hope for or imagine, what does life look like for you? And what he attempts to do here in verse 3 through 21 is he describes two different lives. 
On the one hand, he describes a life of trying to find love. He tries to describe a life of trying to find love at all costs. And it shows a picture of life apart from God before you were a child of God, but striving and trying to find and search for out of desperation that love that only Christ can offer, that only God can give. So in verses three through eight, he describes this life of trying to attain love, trying to strive after love. And at the second part of this passage that I read this morning, he's describing what a life looks like that understands that they are truly a beloved child of God. So two different lives that he's describing. One, you could say, imitates in order to be love, imitates in order to find love, Versus one that is loved completely and now imitates in response, in response that they are a beloved child. Because the reality is every single person will imitate anything and anyone in order to try to find love. Listen to this story. Actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, who died back in 2015, one year before he died, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Oscar-winning actor, took took, uh, took a, uh, a role in the classic play Death of a Salesman. And they asked him in an interview with NPR, they said, they asked him, why did you take this role? And he said, because it captures my life. He said, the idea that you have a vision of what you're supposed to be or going to be or where your kids are going to be and it doesn't work out and this role has had a very personal influence on me because really deep down inside, this role describes me to the core. What we are doing, what I'm striving for in work and friends and hopes and dreams, but at the end of the day, the only thing I really care about and long for when I get up in the morning is to be loved. In the end, the play is just about a man trying to find love. And it was a year later that he took his life. So, the, so from the very beginning, we are people that are yearning for and looking for and searching for love at all costs. And what Paul is saying is he's describing here beginning in verse 3 in chapter 5, this is what life looks like if you don't understand who you are as a beloved child of God, that you will do anything to find love. It's the very opposite of being a beloved child of God. And what he's trying to say here is this cannot be your life. This cannot be what your life looks like. And I think there's three things I want to look at here in verses 3 through 8. There's three things that a life that doesn't understand that they are a beloved child of God, there are three things that mark this life. The first thing is found in verse 3. Paul uses two examples. He uses this example of sexual immorality and covetedness. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to show two examples of how we are disobedient. He's using two examples of sin, but more than that, he's showing one that is external and one that is internal. Sexual immorality was something that was an external, uh, uh, the, how they were externally disobeying the law of God, and covetedness or greed was a way that the Ephesian Christians were internally disobeying the word of God or the law of God. And why is that important? Because Paul wants us to understand that before we were a beloved child of God and we were desperately searching for love in anyone and anything, that we would do 
everything, both externally and internally, to find that love. And for the person that's sitting here this morning and saying, I don't do anything externally wrong, Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not just external sin that disqualifies you. It's not just external sin that makes you guilty. It's also the internal sin in your heart. That you can be totally clean on the outside, but inside you could be a total mess. That you could look here and go, wait, I don't practice sexual immorality, but Paul's saying, no, it's not only what happens on the outside, it's what happens on the inside. That outside there are people that are trying to find love, and there's people on the inside that are trying to find love. That we try to find love through sexual immorality, and that we try to find love through greed or wanting or achieving or wanting something that doesn't belong to us. So it's not only those practice sin on the outside, but also covet in their heart. It's both external and and internal breaking of God's law. And he's saying that we're all guilty of this before we understand that we are a beloved child of God. But then he goes on further. And in verse five, what does he say? What's another mark of this life? trying to imitate the world to find love. He says, another mark of this life is, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous is an idolater and has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's a harsh statement. That's a big statement. He's saying anybody who practices these things is not only an idolater, but will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. What is Paul trying to communicate here? What Paul is trying to communicate here is that for those that do, do not understand and not, have not become a beloved child of God, that they are not living in light of them be, themselves becoming a child of God, but trying to find love from anything and anyone ultimately becomes what? An idolater. What's an idolater? An idolater is someone that not only worships carved statues in the Old Testament. Idolater is anyone who finds anyone or anything less than God and decides to worship that thing. An idolater is ultimately a person who worships who? Themselves. So the reality, the story of the Bible is a people of, uh, is a, a people that ultimately either worship God or ultimately worship themselves. And what we do as idolaters, what Paul's trying to say here is through sexual immorality or greed or covetedness, what we're ultimately doing is we're worshiping ourselves. What do we mean by that? Because we find those things that satisfy who? Us. We live for us. We try to find love on our terms and in our own image. We try to find those things that will satisfy us and bring pleasure to our lives. And what Paul is trying to say here is ultimately we are idolaters apart from the love of Christ which is found in the gospel, that we are all idolaters. And why Paul is able to say here that idolaters have no place in the kingdom of heaven is what he's trying to say is, is that the kingdom of heaven is not for people that worship themselves, that the kingdom of heaven is not for people that believe and have faith in themselves, but the kingdom of heaven is for people that give up on themselves and have faith in someone outside of themselves. Don't miss that. 
that the kingdom of God is not for people that worship themselves. That is what an idolater is, ultimately. But the kingdom of heaven is for someone who gives up on themselves, that no longer says my life exists for me, but there has to be somebody outside of me that will rescue me and love me. And he's saying that is who the kingdom of heaven is reserved for. But lastly, what else is this life marked by? Verse 8. It says, for at one time you were darkness. What is Paul trying to say there? For at one time you were darkness. What Paul is trying to say there is that not only did you do dark things before you knew Christ, before you were a beloved child of God, you were darkness. You just didn't do darkness. You just didn't do dark things. You were darkness. Darkness. What does darkness take us back to? It takes us back to the very beginning of creation. What does it say darkness was? It was empty and formless and chaotic and confusing. And he wants us to understand that how dark were you? You were completely dark. And that you would go to the lowest of lows to try to find love, to try to find approval, to try, you would imitate anything out of your desperation for love. And just in case you were sitting here going, but I don't do this and I don't do that, he wants us to understand that everyone, regardless of how bad you thought you were before Christ, apart from the gospel, he says everyone was darkness. There's this great story of a, uh, a Jewish uh, survivor of the Nazi concentration camps by the name of Yahil Denor. And Yahil Denor was a, was a uh, survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. And one of the, the, the chief architect of the Nazi concentration camps was a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann, after World War II, fled Germany and he escaped. And they didn't find him until 1961. And in 1961, when Adolf Eichmann, the chief architect of the Nazi concentration camps, was brought to trial and stood trial, who do they bring as a witness to testify against him? Yahil Denor. And Yahil Denor walks into the courtroom and he looks at Adolf Eichmann in the eyes for the very first time and he collapses to the ground. Years later, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes asks him, he says, Mr. Denor, I have to ask you, what made you collapse? And he said, for the very first time, I looked at Adolf Eichmann in the eyes, and I realized that he was no demon, and I realized that he was no superhuman. I realized that he was a man just like me. And if he was capable of such darkness, then I am capable of such darkness, and I collapsed. What Yehiel Denor was trying to say is that apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, that we are all guilty of trying to find love in the most desperate ways possible, that ultimately in our core and by our very human nature, apart from God, we are dark. And Paul is saying there is a darkness in the midst of the human heart. But then he switches gears in verse 8. 
And he goes from describing a life that doesn't understand that they are a beloved child of God and trying to explain to them, this is not what your life should look like. And then he switches gears in the middle of verse 8 and he says, now this is what your life looks like in light of being a beloved child of God. And what does he say in the middle of verse 8? At once you were darkness, but now you are light. But light in who? Light in the Lord. And Paul wants us to emphasize that just in case you got any pride that now I'm the light. No, Paul says you're light in the Lord. Apart from the light of Christ, you are nothing but darkness. You are no better than Adolf Eichmann. Apart from the light of Christ that makes you alive. And what does the light of Christ do? In verses 11 through 13, what does it say? In verses 11 through 13, it says that it exposes what? Let no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What is Paul trying to say here? He's saying the light of Christ exposes us, and that is good news, that no longer do we have to live a life of lying. No longer do we have to live a life of hiding. No longer do we have to live in the midst of this darkness, trying to find our love and trying to find our approval by doing anything possible to get it or achieve it or acquire it. And he says, instead, now you can live in the light of the freedom of Christ, that you don't have to live a lie, you no longer have to hide. And he says, everything in verse 13 is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. But the light of Christ not only exposes, what else does it do in verse 14? It makes you alive. Paul says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. So not only does the light of Christ expose us that we no longer have to live a life of hiding, a life of darkness, a life in secret, but it actually makes us alive. The reality that we were in darkness, we were once in darkness, we were once darkness, that you were actually dead and now the light of Christ makes you alive. And then in verse 18, how else does he describe this life? That not only does the light of Christ expose you, but in the light of Christ allows you to live for the first time. But in verse 18, how does he describe this life of the beloved child of God? He says in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What in the world is he talking about here? There was an ancient legend, especially that the Ephesian Christians understood, and that there were gods that, and there was uh, temple worship and idol worship that would say, in order to encounter in order to encounter the transcendent, in order to encounter the spiritual life, you would literally have to get drunk on wine and allow your capacities, your mental and physical capacities to be controlled by something in order to encounter the transcendent, in order to encounter the spiritual. And what Paul is saying is there's only one thing you need to capture your life. There's only one thing you need to control the faculties of your life and of your mind and of your heart, and it's the spirit of the living God. And he says, be filled with it. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Why does Paul want us to be filled with it as beloved children of God? He wants us to be filled with the spirit. Why? 
What's the role of the Spirit in your life as a Christian? The role of the Spirit is to apply all of the benefits and all of the truth of Jesus Christ to your life so that you no longer have to wake up and buy into the lie as a beloved child of God that I now have to imitate the world in order to find love, that I have to imitate the world in order to find approval. When you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit's role in your heart and in your life is applying all of the benefits and all all of the truths of Jesus. It's constantly reminding you who you really are, a beloved child of God, that you do not have to live like you used to live, but now you can live in the freedom of the light of Christ. Be filled with the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that comes down and applies all of the benefits and all of the truths of God, that you do not have to be filled with anything else that we are living a life longing to be fulfilled, longing to be satisfied, and what Paul is saying is look no further. The Spirit of the living God comes in you and gives you everything that you could have ever hoped for or imagined. And then lastly, what's the result of this being filled with the Spirit? In verse 19, it says, you will address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's a powerful verse, but what in the world is he talking about? What are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? The very things that we just sang, right? Which are based on what? What are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in a church based on? the Word of God. And what Paul is saying here is be so filled with the Spirit of God and be so filled with the Word of God in your heart that it does what? What is the effect? What is the fruit of this in your life? That you begin to actually make music and you begin to sing songs, not only to God, don't miss this, but you actually begin to make music and sing songs to one another. That's a beautiful thing, that the, the Spirit of God, that the Word of God that has freed us and made us alive and made us new, the very good news of God, the gospel that is in your heart does not stay in your heart, but it overflows from your heart. And what begins to happen is you begin a, a life in the context of church, in the context of this community, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday of actually singing songs to one another. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture for a church, a church that is so captured by this reality and this truth that we are a beloved child of God, a church that is so captured by this reality of the love of God that I no longer have to imitate the ways of this world, but now because I am a beloved child of God and it is so captured and changed my heart that I actually begin to sing these songs to one another to do what? To remind them of God's love. That's a beautiful church. That's a beautiful picture. Singing one to one another, reminding one another from our heart what Christ alone has done for us. What a beautiful thing. So captured, so overwhelmed by this reality that I am a beloved child of God, that we sing this love to one another. But I want to end with this, and I want to end with this question. How in the world is this possible? 
I, I get what Paul's trying to do. This is not the life you live anymore. This is not what life looks like as a beloved child of God. I get that. And I also get now what it looks like to live a life as a beloved child of God. But how in the world is it possible to imitate God as a beloved child of God? Well, the answer is found in verse 2. Go back there with me. Paul says, walk in love as who? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The answer for how we live a life as a beloved child of God, no longer slavishly trying to imitate the world in order to find love, but living in light of this love of God is through and only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what does it say here in verse 2 that he did? He gave himself up for who? He gave himself up for us. What did he do? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the beloved son of God. Think about this. The beloved son of God, the beloved child of God came down and became what? Unlovable. He became the unloved son of God so that we might become the beloved son of God. Jesus, the beloved son, became forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. The beloved son of God became rejected so that we would never be rejected. The beloved son of God became unlovable so that when God looks at us, he would see something lovable. Jesus, the beloved son of God, imitated us so that we could imitate God the Father. About 10 years ago, uh, the Colombian government started a campaign of how to rescue leftist guerrilla rebels and how to rescue them and to bring them back into society. They hired marketing firms. They uh, engaged in uh, negotiations with these rebels in the jungles, all in attempts to bringing them home, getting them out of this lifestyle, trying to rescue them. And finally, after about five years, it was not working. And so they spent millions of dollars with this marketing firm and this marketer by the name of Jose McGill, Jose Miguel Sokoloff. And Jose Miguel Sokoloff was at the end of his ideas. They had spent millions of dollars on this campaign. And finally, Jose Miguel Sokoloff thought, maybe the church has an answer. And so they engaged with the church to try to rescue these leftist rebels, these guerrilla leftist rebels, and to try to demobilize them and re-enter them into society. And this is what the church came up with. They came up with something around Christmas time, 10 years ago, called Operation Christmas. And this is what the church did. Instead of putting IEDs out and bombs that it would explode as the rebels would enter into the jungle, they instead put motion sensors in. And what would happen, they did nine strategic locations throughout the Colombian jungle. And they, what happened was this, when the rebels would enter these nine strategic places or in the jungles of Colombia, Christmas lights would go off. Can you imagine? Christmas lights would go off and a pre-recorded message came on and it said this, if Christmas can come home to the jungle, you can come home too. 
And the campaign that year helped mobilize 331 rebels. Well, the church decided to do it again. The next year, they called it Operation River of Lights, and they filled 7,000 translucent Christmas bulbs and put it down the river. And it had this message, and as you picked up the, the light and you opened it up, it says, when you see all the lights floating down the river, slowly floating down towards you, remember that you are beautiful just like this light and you are drawn to it. The following year, the, the church came up with Operation Bethlehem and they sh- shone huge skylights up into the night air in the jungle and ran the following message, this Christmas, follow the light that will guide you to freedom, and to a new life. In the last 10 years, they have demobilized 3,000 rebels from the Colombian jungles. And they interviewed one of those rebels, and they asked him, why the change? What made you come home? What made you leave your life? And this is what he said. He said, I thought I was too lost. I thought I had gone too far down that road of rebellion and destruction. My life was dark. But when I knew, listen to this, when I knew that I could come home, when I knew that I was loved, that changed everything. I knew that I could begin again. So the hope that we have this morning is that you no longer have to run to find love that you no longer have to run to find approval. The reality this morning is that through the person of Jesus and through the person and work of Jesus alone, love has come down and found you. Because of Jesus, you no longer have to live that life. You can now live a life as a beloved child of God. And that's good news.